I am on the prowl indeed. Welcome to Podcats. This is Cats, John Katzlamidis of the Las Vegas Review Journal. My column is called Cats, fittingly enough. Find it on page 3A every day and online all the time. What is happening in the column? Well, we have had time with Lady Gaga and her band leader, Brian Newman, at Park Theater. The cool hang alert lately has actually been Newman's late night after dark shows at Nomad Restaurant. Gaga has visited the club twice, and we expect at least one more pop in this weekend as she closes this set of shows at Park Theater. Steve Aoki is the latest artist to be featured on Viva Vision at Fremont Street Experience. He was out there on Thursday night, and his tribute was the first of eight sections being renovated in downtown Las Vegas. Aoki appeared in front of about 8,000 fans to premiere a six-song video montage of his hits. The project is a total overhaul of the Viva Vision audio and video technology and is to be ready to party on New Year's Eve. Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club hosts its premiere weekend this weekend. The club at Link Promenade has been open in a preview period for several weeks. Kimmel, who will be on hand for this event, says he is donating all of the profits he would receive from the club to Las Vegas charities. And our friends the Pawn Stars have signed on for 40 new episodes for Season 17 on History Channel. These new shows will air beginning in October. The show moved to an hour-long format for Season 16. Gold and Silver Pawn owner and series co-star Rick Harrison says that he, Corey, and Chumley are going to go around the world looking for odd items in the upcoming season. Our guest on this episode of Podcasts is the headlining magician at Westgate Las Vegas, Jen Kramer. She's not only the lone female magician headliner in Las Vegas, but also the only magician in this city to hold a Yale degree. Jen has just celebrated her one-year anniversary at the hotel and has signed on for another two years at Westgate Cabaret. Podcasts here at the uh, Westgate Cabaret where Jen Kramer is the headliner. Now, Jen, uh, there's a lot of in, uh, interesting uh, facets to your career. I want to ask you first about uh, your, uh, you went to Yali, right? The Ivy League school. <laughs> I, I did. Yeah, I did. That's exactly I how I it, pronounce right? it. Too. Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. I, I felt that. Um, you went to Yale. And uh, tell me about how succinctly a, a, a woman who is an Ivy League graduate is headlining a theater in Las Vegas as a magician. It is definitely an unconventional path. It's totally unconventional. But I've always loved magic. It's crazy. <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, I've loved magic. I knew that magic was something I wanted to pursue full time. And I think for me, those college years were about figuring out how do I take this thing I love and turn it into a practical reality? How mm -hmm. do I work out the details and make it happen? And fortunately, I'm a uh, able to do it. I've been out here in Vegas about five years now. We mm -hmm. just celebrated one year here at Westgate. Yeah, recently. We yeah. met um, at the uh, Sand Dollar Lounge, did we not? Did we, we were did. there for one of those uh, Ricky Laxdale things? What yeah, was that? What was going on there? kind of a funny story, actually. I was sitting with Ricky back at Wonder Gun years ago, uh -huh. and we just happened to be chatting. He's a great guy, and he mentioned that he was looking for a venue to host an event. And it just so happens at the time I had some friends who had recently opened a bar. And uh -huh. I thought, it kind of a light bulb went off. I thought, oh, cool, you know, I bet they can connect and get along. And so I introduced them, and fortunately it uh, worked out. It yeah. was a fun event. Yeah, that's right. That's how we met. Yeah. Ricky Blacks, for those of you out there who don't know, is a magician also in town in Las Vegas. And a, a former uh, colleague of mine at Las Vegas Weekly, as it turns out. He was a writer there for a while. Um, when you were uh, going into um, Yale, uh, 
What was your development like up to that point? Were you per- performing as a magician entering into that period? Let's just I was. backtrack. Let's go back and find the beginning of this whole thing. Yes. So I first got started in magic when I was 10 years old. My Uncle Steve gave me a book for my 10th birthday called The Royal Road to Card Magic. And who was the author of that book? It was Jean Hugard and Frederick Brow. Okay. Yeah, two, two co co authors. It was published in 19, was it 1948 originally. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's an old school book from 1948. And I love this book. I still love this book. And it really kind of teaches the fundamentals of card magic everything from basic shuffling technique to more advanced moves. Mm-hmm. And I started doing uh, you know, local birthday parties. I called the local Barnes and Noble back in New York where mm-hmm. I grew up when I was maybe 13 years old, 14, and said, hey, you know, I'd love to do a show. And, uh, you know, that <laughs> little stage. Yeah, That's where they used to know, sell that. books, ladies and gentlemen, by the way. <laughs> paper versions of what you read online. Uh, exactly, um, yes. So what was the yes. first r- routine? You opened this book up, and what captured you first, really? What was the thing you wanted to start working on? So what's interesting about that book uh, is that it teaches you a technique, and then it immediately teaches you a trick that you can do using the technique. So it's rewarding in that it's structured in a cool way where you kind of learn this, you have this great foundation of different moves that you can do, and you're able to immediately implement what you just learned, which is cool. So I remember there was a a spelling-related trick that I especially enjoyed where you spell out the name of the card and the card ends up there. Uh Not to nerd out too much on you with with the specifics. You have a variation of this in your show now. There's something like it where you where you have it, it uh, anticipate a, a number of, of, of facts that are like sure and, and it's an anticipatory prediction yes. thing yeah. yes and uh, so that's inspired by that routine I would think right uh, you know it's uh, it does have some similarities mm-hmm. definitely definitely so what was it, what was it like to perform in front of people for the first time. You know, I think my first gig may have been my little sister's birthday party when I was around 11, and I got paid in pizza, and I was thrilled with that arrangement. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long time, long time before the four-wall worked. <laughs> but uh, it was great. I mean, I you know looked up to like Lance Burton, and I still think he's, he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I remember he used to say uh, that flight time was so important. He still says, you know, that flight time, just getting out there, performing in front of people is Mm -hmm. such an important thing just to get that experience. And so I knew from the beginning that was something I really wanted to do is get out there and perform, whether it was at parties, whether it was at that local Barnes and Noble, I just called up and said, hi, you know, can I speak to the manager and wanted to set up a little show in the children's section, Mm -hmm. you know, in that little stage where they do story time. And I thought, you know what, I just want to go. It wasn't to me about making money. It was just about getting to perform, getting to be in front of people and get that experience. I had a magician one time tell me that it was a, it was a, that he got into magic as a way to fool grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> There's some mischief there, or even a, even some a little bit of control that a child doesn't enjoy otherwise over adults. Did you uh, did sure. you find that to be the case? So interesting. This is something I actually wrote about in my college application essay. Interestingly, really? yeah, this hasn't come up in a while, but. Yes, I think I think when you're a kid, you know, you're a ten year old and, and it seems like the grown ups know everything. You know, mm-hmm. it's like your mom and dad know all. But I think there is a really cool feeling about being able to show them something that you've worked on and even the all knowing grown ups 
don't know how it happened. I think as a kid, that's a really exciting feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think as I progressed as a magician, my reasons for being a magician, my reasons for caring so much about magic developed. And I think it became more about really connecting with people mm -hmm. and sharing the experience of wonder. But definitely, I think at first there is something And this was in place long before you, uh, when you were young, sure. in, in your high school era, teenage years, I would expect, right? Yeah, oh yeah I did magic all through school, through middle so, school, high school. Yeah, so college. why did you decide um, you, you needed to go to an Ivy League school when you could have been uh, on the road or in, in, your, uh, in some kind of professional capacity developing your magic skills? Well, why you know. Yale, he asks. <laughs> Hogwarts wouldn't take me, so... Hogwarts. <laughs> Couldn't get that Hogwarts scholarship. <laughs> right. But, uh, no, you know, Yale it does have some similarities to the uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts. Well, it's got the Gothic architecture going for it. It wouldn't be surprised if it weren't somehow an inspiration for Hogwarts. It's or just possible, generally. Yeah. Anyway, right, right, I sure. can't speak to that. Sure. I can't speak to any of it, actually, but why not? Okay, so you go to Hogwarts. But, uh, but really, but why? Yes. Why? Because you could have, I mean, you could have been Running the, running the county fair circuit, you've been running your professional ambition outside of uh, higher education, right? Sure. Well, education was something that uh, has always been really important to me and to my family, and so I knew ever since I was a kid I, I really wanted to go to a school like that. Of course, at the time, you know, I didn't know what would happen, and of course it's a competitive process, but oh, yeah. um, I was so excited when I found out that I would have the opportunity to go and uh, definitely got to incorporate a lot of magic into my Yale classes, my professors were great. They let me do magic as part of class presentations. I did a really? senior project about magic. Give me an example magic. of how you, uh, you produce magic in a Yale classroom. Oh, man, so many examples. Uh, my senior project you was... the marking board disappear. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, my senior project was an experimental magic show. So the concept was we took over this art gallery on campus, which had these different rooms which, you know, an art gallery is sort of a blank canvas mm -hmm. in that you really have a lot to work with. And so we, in each room, created a different set. So I did it as a co-senior project with a fellow senior, great theater guy named Andrew, who's a set designer. And that's really his specialty. And my specialty was really magic. So the two of us came together and we created these sets so that each room had a different feel to it. And then we took an intimate group. It was like 15 people per performance. And we led them. So rather than having the audience sitting in one place watching the show on stage, it was us taking the audience on this journey where they went through these different areas, these different rooms of the gallery. We went outside through an alleyway around the building and sort of created this wandering, floating magic show, which wow. was a lot of fun. That is yeah. fun. That is fun. So what, did you, what was your actual major at uh, Yale? It was a theater studies major. Theater studies. Theta. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> that does help, right? You must have picked up some. Sure. Some skills. What, what, oh, yeah. what did you take away from that? Uh, I think there's process? so much overlap with theater and magic. Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately, I think they're both about storytelling, about connecting with people, and mm -hmm. I think you know those skills are super transferable. Watching your show, it's very much a, a reminder that you have to buy into the personality as much as the craftsmanship, don't you? The craftswomanship in this case. Sure. Um, when, did you believe that? Do you believe it's important to, to viscerally connect to the performer in magic more so than in other mediums? because you have to be wanting want to spend time with this person, regardless right. of what they're doing, right? Sure. I mean, I think in magic, connecting with people, at least you know, from my experience, that's what it really is all about. And so I think, uh, you know, being the kind of person where people want to spend time with you helps them connect with you, helps them enjoy the magic. And 
not feel like uh, like you're trying to fool them or you're trying to trick them. You make them feel like, hey, we're on this journey together, we're experiencing something cool together, mm -hmm. and I'm sharing with you something I care about. So. When uh, you moved here five years ago, you said, yes. Magic Mecca, Las Vegas, um, what was your idea of, why did you move here, first of all, and how did you connect with the folks of Westgate? Sure. So, while I was in college, I mentioned that was the time when I was really figuring out how do I take this thing I love and mm -hmm. make it into a full-time career. And I took an internship, actually. I interned for Nathan Burton back when his show was at the Flamingo. Oh, yeah. So, mm -hmm. came out here for two summers. I was 18, 19 at the time, uh, summers while I was in college, mm -hmm. and just wanted to learn about the Vegas showbiz world, just wanted to get a feel for if this was the right place for me. I just had an inkling that it was. Uh -huh. I felt like as the magic mecca, as this magic capital of the world, it would be such an exciting place to launch yeah. a full-time career so in magic. So when, when Nathan first came out to headline, about this was back, uh, like he had been, 2010, been working for a little while, but this was probably right around that, 2011, yeah. 2012, yeah. in that range. Uh, so we were at the Flamingo at the time. And yeah, I met Nathan when he was on the Entertainer show, remember that? Oh, he was on a couple yeah. years earlier on the E! Network, they had an Entertainer oh, wow. uh, competition show. And it was, I met him here cool. at, the, at the Ben Hilton Oh, is that right? part of that, yeah, and then he came wow. out after that. So he was pretty fresh when he, by the time he, to Las Vegas by the time he enlisted you to. Oh, wow. And you go way back then, the two of you. I'm old. <laughs> I'm grizzled, Kramer. Um, but anyway, yeah, so how did that work out? Uh, it was a great experience, definitely. And uh, I think for me, it really solidified the fact that I wanted to be in Las Vegas. At the time, I grew up in New York. Most of my contacts, people I knew, my right. friends were in New York. Neon in your eyes. <laughs> Siegfried and Roy, all that stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I mean I, the whole thing, yeah, the whole magic mecca was was lured you to Las Vegas. Absolutely, and uh, I think it, when I was in college, that's when I started reaching out after I had had this experience over the summer and had sort of realized this is this is the place I want to be. Did you use your Yale education as a marketing lure? Like when you would pitch yourself? Pitch. I mean, you would have to, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's one you know it's one talking point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, hey, <laughs> we sure talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people ask all the time the same question about being a woman in magic, and I think the same answer mm -hmm. applies. It's both are a part of who I am, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of proud of both. I'm, I definitely think it's something to to mention. But is the is the woman? This is like asking about women in comedy, also. You know, I get that a lot. Like, it's not it's not as as rough as you might think. I've had comedians tell me that. Is it that is it so difficult for a woman in magic to, to succeed as a headliner? Yeah, I've been oh, really, really... I mean, we don't have many. You're the only one in Las Vegas right now. I've, I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by such supportive people mm -hmm. in the magic community. And uh, I think, of course, there are challenges to, to anyone working on... Where, you know, regardless of your field, regardless of, of what you're doing, I think there are challenges. Of course, being a woman, there are some unique challenges. For example, magic books are often written with men in mind. So mm -hmm. they'll say things like, you know, reach into your right trouser pocket or your left jacket, you know, coat pocket. <laughs> and you'll think, well, I don't have a left jacket, coat pocket or a trouser pocket. But, you know, for the most part, I think I just and had great people in my of life. Of course, and, the assistants yeah. have always been beautiful women, as a, apparently, ostensibly, to be diversionary. Uh, partners on stage for men, and so that's how women have been, you know, portrayed in magic for for generations. Okay. Um, so, where, at what point did you um, connect with the people who could in, uh, enact your headlining gig here at the Westgate? 
So that seems the crucial point of view in Las Vegas is this room we're in now. So I can trace it back to my junior and senior years of college. I started reaching out, uh, mostly cold calls, cold emails, to places here in Vegas with the idea of pitching a show. And I had sort of a concept I wanted to pitch. Uh, and I knew going into it that most of them would Are say you no. you call yourself? Yeah, you, oh, you, sure. You would call sure. And, and from New Haven, Connecticut, you know, from, from school. This is the, <laughs> just call. <laughs> this is the caller ID you don't take. New Haven, right. I don't You're know like, what is this? Am I, is this a spam call? <laughs> this is a telemarketer? So, yeah. <laughs> or some car I own three cars ago is being recalled. That's right. the kind of call that comes from New Haven, Connecticut. Well, let's, do, let's do role play. So, let's say I'm the, I'm the entertainment director or I'm the overlord of the hotel. And I answer your call, and you get patched through to me. What Pitch me on your show at that time. Hello, this is John. I'm the entertainment director. How can I help you? Hi, John. My name is Jen Kramer. I'm a senior at Yale. I'm moving out to Las Vegas. Isn't that pronounced Yali? <laughs> That's right, John. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And I uh, wanted to see, I'm, I'm flying out to Vegas over my spring break and would love to sit down and chat with you about the possibility of working together and performing on your property. Is that something you'd be open to? Are you a magician? Is that, am I hearing you right? I am, yes. I'm a professional magician. Been doing magic ever since I was a kid. I'm happy to send you some materials by email. If you have an address, I could send them to. So, and when you get to that point, do they say, send me your stuff? Usually? Sure, and you know, sometimes I would just send these emails, sometimes it would be phone calls, but either way, the goal was to try to sit down with them in a room, because I knew if I can sit with them face to face, uh -huh. I thought that was really my best chance at success mm -hmm. in making that pitch, and you know, I fully expected that most of the places I reached out to would say no, and I wasn't going to be discouraged by that, because of course, they'll say, no, you know, it's not something they've done no, before. A, they don't have the budget or the space. You know space. in direct marketing, they say all these no's. Eventually, there's a yes in there. Right. It's one exactly. step to a yes, right? Right. And <laughs> all you need is one yes. That's, That's the it. thing, right? Like, all I needed was one. So it didn't matter mm -hmm. if 40 places said no. If one place said yes, then I was all set. So, so. the yes came from here? From the well, West actually, it's it? a bit of a longer story. So. I know so that the they yes? said yes because we're sitting here inside the hotel. <laughs> So I had reached out first to, to mostly smaller hotels, smaller properties, and so I hadn't even originally reached out here. I think I, this just wasn't at that point, uh, you know, I don't think at that point I was, I was totally ready for this. Um, but I reached out and, and Wyndham Grand Desert, the Wyndham Grand Desert was the first place to say, hey, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give this a shot. And so... I moved out here after graduating and started doing a weekly show at the Wyndham. And once that was up and running, uh, there were a few other properties that I had been in discussions with, but they hadn't, uh, you know, officially agreed yet. And once we kind of had a working model at Wyndham, I was able to go back to, you know, at this point it was Marriott's Grand Chateau mm -hmm. and say, hey, this is this is working really well right. at this other property. Are you open to giving it a shot now? And then started the Marriott show about a month later. The fact that you another weekly done the first show. one led to you being able. Exactly. Exactly. And so ended up doing several weekly shows and what was the show for like? about four years. Well, who was your audience? So it was mostly people from the from the hotels themselves yeah. who wanted an option that was on property, uh, something where they, you know, <laughs> the convenience of just being there. It was family audiences. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. of course, depending on the time of year, the demographic would change. So sometimes it would be a lot of kids in the crowd, sometimes it would be retirees, sometimes it would be business people. You just never. Yeah. Never knew, depending on what was going on at that particular time of year. But I did those weekly shows, uh, several weekly shows at these different properties for the next uh, about four years. Wow. 
and was able to long. really, yeah, and, and I'm so grateful for those experiences because I feel like when this opportunity came up at Westgate, I felt so excited and so prepared at that point because I felt like I had had this amazing laboratory where I could experiment and try different things and really focus on the content of what I was doing. And I think when I fortunately had the opportunity to come here, I had had all those shows under my belt and it really yeah. made me feel like, all right, now I'm ready to it's have It's just like residency. we talk about this with musicians, singers, bands all the time, where you need, you need a lot of gigs. To, to become good. You have a bad gig story. You don't have to even specify the place, but like a thing where something that, that went wrong and you learned from in those days. Oh, man. I mean, there are so many unexpected things that happen all the time. You do a lot of audience participation, so that's a, that's a wild definitely. card. Yeah. And, that, and it is in that you know every show is a little bit different because every audience is different, and you never know. You know When you're calling people up on stage, involving them in the show, you never know what someone will say and do. And I think that also kind of keeps it exciting because it is the beauty of live theater that mm -hmm. you really don't know exactly what is going to happen. And you can prepare and prepare and think of every possible contingency and try to plan for it. And still, inevitably, things will sometimes happen. And I think the question at that point is, like, do you feel confident enough to go with the flow and to make it, you know, make the most of the experience as opposed to having it kind of take over. Right, right. Well, we had that happen in here the other day where uh, it was a family and you took the father from the kid, the kid, or children over there, and one of the kids had separation anxiety when their dad went up on stage, remember that? Oh, right. Like he made a joke about something about he, you, you took the kid's phone, didn't you? <laughs> this kid's wailing at the stage and his dad's up there trying to be a part of the show. And it became the shtick, became and the phone became, thing. Yeah. Right, right, it, was, it was actually great. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It got, got to the point actually in that instance where I was thinking, I hope the kid keeps crying because this is a pretty good bit. <laughs> Shows you why well. I'm not a parent. But anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, and luckily, I think, <laughs> I, I feel like those moments, uh, for me, I, I think one thing that has been really helpful that I've learned kind of doing more and more shows is just that like the more present and the more in the moment and really just reacting in real time to what's going on you can be, I think the more connected the audience feels to you because they don't feel like they're just getting, you know, a performance that you've done 500 times. They feel like, oh wow, we were here on the night that this happened. Yeah. You know, and uh -huh. people still say to me sometimes, they'll come back to the show and they'll say, hey, we were there the night that so-and-so was in the crowd, yeah. or we were there the night, and, and people, that really mm -hmm. sticks with people when they feel like they've had a unique experience. Yeah, I've seen shows that try to build in the unique experiences and you can kind of tell that the thing is, is unique. Right. You know, I mean, right. it's been made to be unique. I'll give you an example of how, how one yes, of these, yes. uh, in Absinthe. Mm -hmm. It's an act that's really, it's not in the show right now, so I'm not really disclosing anything, but they have an, a, a low-wire act. Have you seen Absinthe? Mm -hmm. Okay, you know the, the, yeah, yeah, the great fat show. pack. Yeah, great show. Well, at the beginning of Absinthe, the, the, this particular lineup had um, one of the artists would be walking across the low-wire okay. and um, would be, you know, going across and, and uh, he had, his, he had the, the bar and he would slip his foot would come off the bar and he'd catch himself real fast. Mm -hmm. And when you see that for the first time, it's like, oh, he's very close to going over. Mm -hmm. The second time I saw the show, same moment in the show, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. It was great enough to do it intentionally. Uh, 
but yeah. Wow. So that's so interesting to sort of increase the perceived level of difficulty, and exactly. the audience then really appreciates and what's have it going built on. in. Yeah. 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 I think it's there's something really interesting to me about that. Like sometimes, you know, it's very possible. I don't know their specific situation, but it's very possible. Like maybe, maybe there was one day years ago where really he did kind of trip a little bit, and the audience responded so well to it. He thought, mm -hmm. oh, let me incorporate Let's make that this. A thing. And I know mm -hmm. I've done similar things. An audience yeah. member will say something funny, and I'll think. Well, that was a great moment. Like, that was just a beautiful moment in real time. Is there a way, without it seeming contrived, is there a natural way to somehow create the conditions for that to happen again mm -hmm. or build that into the show in some way? Yeah. yeah. You're tempted to do it, but you don't do it. You don't do it. You don't, you don't build it in, uh, intentionally. Or are there I moments mean, in the show that are there moments kind of... where people have said funny things, and I'll try to then work that into the script in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you hear it. But it has to be heard organically. Right. You know what to say, but that has to be. You don't. You don't plant the the phrase in the audience, right? Right. right. But yeah. if someone says something organically one night and it gets a great laugh, mm -hmm. maybe the next night I'll think to myself, or a few nights later I'll think, okay, I wonder. You know, can I say, hey, the guy last night said da 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 da, and then you get the laugh again. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> That counts. As long as it's in your show, it's like how we say in our business, you can't plagiarize yourself. Right? Um, there, I, I've, I've had this conversation about, around uh, magicians. I've been talking to some magicians lately, especially because it just seems like magic is such a thing in Las Vegas, and it's sure. a thing because it's so popular. Um, what do you think of the, and how do you explain the high volume and the high variety of magicians in Las Vegas? How do you explain the popularity in our city? Now that you've been here, here for a year. Sure, they do say Magic uh, or Las Vegas has the most magicians per square foot of any place. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, which I think is such a great thing. Um, you know, people ask all the time, is it really competitive? And I'm sure there's an element of it, but I think really mm -hmm. it's been, I think, very collaborative. And having all these magicians around has been great because it means that, you know, when I'm working on something for the show or if they're working on a project, we can help each other out. We can brainstorm. We can, like, there are these great creative minds to collaborate with. And mm -hmm. I think that team effort element is really exciting and fun. That's interesting you say that because I want to talk to you in a few years after you've been doing this for a while and see if that's still the case. <laughs> I love Lance Burton's quote. We'd always like, Lance, because Lance is a wonderful guy. You know, he he's is. a dear friend of mine. He is. I'm like, Lance, how do you manage to maintain universal popularity with all these magicians? You know, and he says, because I'm retired. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I don't have to worry about him at the Monte Carlo anymore. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, his show, oh man, his show was my favorite. I yeah. loved his. You saw? Did you see him at the Monte Carlo? Over there? I saw yeah. him at the Monte Carlo the last summer that he was yeah. performing, Sorry. and I still—he's a wonderful guy, wonderful performer. Just a, mm -hmm. can't say enough great things about him. Who blows but. your mind as a magician these days? Is anybody out there who just just completely floors you? Oh man, there are, there are so many great magicians out there. Uh, I think to me, it's exciting to see other women in magic. I mm -hmm. think right now is is an exciting time for women in magic because I see that the number of women in this increasing in this historically kind of male dominated field has been increasing and mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a really cool thing to see and and you know being able to uh, uh, be able to meet like a young girl who will come up after the show at the meet and greet and say you know, hey, this is this is something I'd like to do now, or I can't wait to learn a magic trick. You know, it's, it's sorry, but there's so many. I mean, Penn yeah. Teller, David Copperfield, so many amazing. It's interesting because I got to know um, uh, during some in the course of her career, Melinda, first lady of magic, sure. and she did a thing the last time I saw her perform here in Las Vegas, where she brought a little girl up on stage and and explained to her 
telling not only this individual child, but everybody, that it was possible. Right. Did anybody say that to you? Did anybody in your development, any female, come up to you and say, it can work for women? You know, I want to recognize, like, there are, there are so many amazing women in magic who are working today and who have worked in generations past. Uh, you know, and even though it is that male-dominated field, there have been and are wonderful women in magic. I mm -hmm. definitely want to recognize them for that. I think when I was a kid first getting started, the magicians who I knew of at the time were the magicians I saw on TV, who were the David Copperfields, the Penn and Teller, the David Blaine, and so I think they were my first role models in magic. Uh -huh. And I think it's only as I kind of developed and became a part of this magic world and went to magic conventions and met other women in magic that we could support each other and encourage each other, and uh, it could be you know a really positive mm -hmm. thing. Yours is a family show. Clearly, yes. we talked about children a second ago. Um, have you ever thought about doing a variation of your show that it was adult, that it had adult themes, adult language in it, more um, more of an edge? I think, for me, I I really love the fact that the show can appeal to someone who's seven years old or seventy years old, mm -hmm. and right now that's exciting to me. The fact that it can be an all ages show, um, and you know there'll be a few moments that are a little bit. You know, not super edgy, but you know, it's definitely family friendly. Come bring your family. It's it's appropriate for kids, no doubt. But there are a few of those kind of Flintstone joke moments where you'll say something and you'll kind of just be hinting at it, and the adults will understand the joke on one level, and the kids it'll just you know go over their heads. They won't they won't know what's going on, but the adults will. It'll kind of be a joke that operates on two two levels. Yeah, so there are a few again, moments. Again, like one of the recent shows I saw, there was some of that in the Facebook moment where the where the guy who came up was, was sort of, what was the deal with him? He, he appealed to all genders and all types or something oh. like that. <laughs> and that routine I have a blast with because really, truly, I you know, I, people come up with all sorts of things and you never know what they're going to come up with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're getting ready to do tonight's show and I have no clue what the people will say. And I think I have fun getting a chance to kind of ad-lib and have fun with them in the moment with yeah. that. This is a, a routine where you create a Facebook profile on stage. That's right. the premise. That's the beginning of the premise. So it can be it can go any which direction depending exactly. on the answers, right? Yeah, and we've had totally different uh, types of profiles created depending on who happens to uh, participate <laughs> in the audience. So. But we won't see, we won't see the, the uh, Jim Kramer X show at the, at the Westgate Theater then, huh? Sometimes I wonder what the what the yin-yang would be, what the turnover would be if somebody were to try that. It's just an interesting, I think that of all magicians. I think that of Mac King sometimes, you know. What it'd be like to do late night show with Mac. Interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah, that's an interesting be, question. Yeah, what would it be to yeah. see the, the, the Mondo Universe version right. of the show? <laughs> and Mac is awesome, by the way. Yeah. He's, a, he's oh. a great... Another great guy, great performer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, he's a uh, guy like Mac. He's been at Harris for 20 years in yeah. Magic Act. That's yeah, right. I mean, and Copperfield right. still fills out. We still have uh, big production shows opening with Chris's show. He's got a lot of investment into Magic. Right. Uh, that must be good news for you, I would think, when somebody Absolutely. invests that way in Magic. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think when I think when one person rises in Magic, we all kind of rise mm -hmm. together. I think it's great for the art. I think it's great for the community. Uh, I'm so excited to have the chance to see the other shows in town, and it's great to have other performers come to my show, too, be able to support each other. Uh, you know, you mentioned Vegas is really the magic mecca. It's, it's so true, mm -hmm. and I think there's just a history of magic in this town, yeah. and uh, 
And it's exciting to see all the different styles of magic mm -hmm. as well. You know? Yeah, you're really right because we talk about because I've I've known like uh, I've known Siegfried Moreau over the years, and I also met mm -hmm. Shin Lim, who's very contemporary yes. and in the moment and the champion of champions of the HET, oh, yeah. yep. and all levels in between. Right, and you mentioned who blows you away. I mean, Shin Lim is terrific. Uh -huh. he, he that really guy, has amazing skills. I'm almost Jen reluctant to interview him because I'm afraid he's going to steal something off me. <laughs> I don't quite trust him. Um, you know, I guess that goes for everybody. We'll wrap it up with what is your contract here at uh, the, the Westgate? How, for how long are you going to be performing here for sure? So we just extended the contract for the next two years. So I'm excited to continue mm -hmm. to be a part of this wonderful Westgate family. I love it here. She's I mean, beaming Westgate's at that. Like, yeah. yeah. It's a great Westgate's room a special here. place. It is. Yeah. It's, you know, what I love about this room is I feel like it has the production elements of a larger theater and yeah. that there are a lot of cool things you can do mm -hmm. with the lights, the sound, the LED screens, uh, but it also has the intimacy of, you know, feeling like you're up close, watching something up close and personal, connecting with people up close. And I love that it has both of those elements. And and I love the team I get to work with here at Westgate. I'm like really so grateful for it. Uh, so excited to be yeah. here. You're at five o'clock. You kick off a night of uh, George Wallace comes in after That's that, right. right? And then yeah. Sexy's at night. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a triple header here of all yes. kinds of different entertainment. That's right. That's and come it. come check out the other shows uh, as well. <laughs> you George can do three in a row. And, uh, You'll be all right. Yes, exactly. Unless you're, unless you're under 21, then you can't do all of them. But, um, <laughs> well, Jen, it's been great to know you here. It's been great to spend time with you. We're going to be back here uh, frequently. And uh, we'll see you on NBC at some point also, all right? You'll yes. be on TV, national TV, sometime soon. Do they know when that's yes. going to happen? Do, I haven't gotten a date yet, but I'm looking forward to we it. Need, so. We need to kick them on that. Well, thank you for your time, and, uh, and uh, it's, just, it's been a joy to work with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a blast chatting with you. Thanks for having me. That closes out another episode of Podcasts. Thank you, Frankie Moreno, for our theme song. Keep up with me or try to on the Review Journal website or at Johnny Katz on Twitter, at Johnny Katz number one on Instagram, and listen to the next installment of Podcasts. Cat and town.